Sounds like a pretty good day, doesn't it? A day when all our tears, all our pains, all our sufferings that we just spoke of are done away with. We know how long we have to worry about those. We will be with the fullness of glory with Christ himself. And really the passage we're going to look at today reminds us of the certainty of that promise that is stored up for those who are on the Lord's side. And so looking forward to diving into that with you this morning. So I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Joshua chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a couple strong men who are hauling those Bibles to the back. Just throw your hand up in the air. They'll make sure that they get one to you so you can follow along with us here this morning. Certainly grateful for Pastor Josh filling in last week and the message we learned from Revelation chapter 5, a reminder of the worthiness of the Lamb who sits on the throne, the one who rules in power and might. And that, I think, is going to come into great relevance today as we think about this week's topic from Joshua chapter 10, thinking about the power and the authority of our great God. Just a quick recap of where we have been as we return to our study of Joshua. It's been a few weeks, so I want to remind you of the journey we've been on so far over the first four chapters of the book of Joshua as we studied that together. Uh, we were uh, told of Israel's final, uh, entering the land finally after 40 years wandering in the wilderness. The first four chapters are about that uh, final entrance into the land. Their, their feet are on solid ground uh, in the land that the Lord had promised them. Uh, over the course of chapters 5 to 12, which we're still in right now, we're in the part of them actually taking control of the land, the, the actual conquest of that land. And as we've seen, that, that journey has been a little bit of a roller coaster, hasn't it? Uh, it's been filled with its shares of, of ups and downs over recent weeks. The, the ups of spiritual and great victory at places like Jericho and Ai, but also still filled with plenty of downs with uh, disappointments. Uh, things like the, uh, the sin and the treachery of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, the initial humiliating defeat at the hands of Ai in chapter 8, or in chapter 7 as well, and then also, as we looked last week in chapter 9, how they were tricked into a treaty with the Gibeonites when they came wanting to play their own version of let's make a deal. And that's kind of where the curtain closed on chapter 9, where we left off a few weeks ago. Uh, but we're going to quickly see how that unfortunate treaty with Gibeon, where we left off last time, actually will play a very important role uh, for what we're going to tackle today in chapter 10. Uh, so it's with that in mind, I want to encourage you, if you're able to stand and honor the public reading of God's Word, we're going to read from Joshua chapter 10 this morning. Uh, just the opening 15 verses, uh, it's a long chapter, so we'll uh, just summarize it up here in the first 15 verses as we read together this morning. Joshua 10, starting in verse 1, says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. 
Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and made and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until all of the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. And there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. You may be seated, and let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time now. And Lord, we do pray to you, asking for your kindness on us in these uh, few moments that we have to study your word together. Uh, we are grateful that you are a God of great might, great power, uh, we've sung of that, and now, Lord, we desire to see that more clearly as you open our eyes to the majesty of your word. So help us to see that more clearly today, we ask with humbleness of heart. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you this morning to describe the person of God, I wonder what characteristics you might use. After all, it was... A.W. Tozer, who famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Admittedly, there is a lot that could come to our minds when we think about God and his character, what is maybe important to us or what we value, or what we've experienced ourselves at the hand of God. Many of us may think, first and foremost, about his love, his grace, his patience, his loving kindness. His compassion, and rightfully so. Others may think of these strong characteristics of the Lord, how he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. Perhaps the holiness, perhaps the righteousness of God, all kinds of things that could come to our minds. Yet how many of us would honestly say, when I think of God, I think of God as a warrior. I think of God as a, a fighter. I think of God as a lion. Uh, I'd probably venture to guess that those probably may not be the top three things that come to you, or it might not be a characteristic that comes into your top three, maybe even your top ten when you think about God. 
And yet that characteristic of God is on full display for us in Joshua 10. Uh, We see a side of God that showcases the passion and the zeal that he has, particularly for his people. I think if we look very closely today at Joshua 10, we will see that when God fights for his people, the victory is certain. When God fights for his people, they can be sure of certain victory. It's a verse that rises to the surface as we look at this passage. We, we, we saw it already in verse 14 where it says that the Lord fought for Israel. Again, that is emphasized at the end of the chapter in verse 42 where Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Both of these verses clearly state that God's people won decisively because it was God who fought for them. And my hope for you today is to help remind you that this is the very same God who still fights for you even today. We've come back time and time again to that truth from Romans 8.31 that if God is for us, then who or what can stand against us? That if God has already done the hardest thing in our deliverance, which is giving us his very only son, how will he not provide everything else that we need, including our final deliverance from this world and the ultimate victory over sin and death in the end? What I want you to see this morning is that our God is not some soft teddy bear who's just meant to be cuddled. No, our God is indeed a ferocious lion, and he fights when the time comes. And so let's look at this story this morning in in four movements, four different uh, movements. I want to begin in verses 1 through 5 where we see the foolish opposition against God's people, the foolish opposition against God's people. This story really picks up where chapter 9 left off. But it also begins very similarly to have, uh, how chapter 9 began with these armies uniting against God's people. Uh, but this time it's not against Israel that they're uniting against. They're uniting against the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites. See, this is, this is so interesting what's, what's going on here. We'll unpack this in a, morning, in, in a moment, but uh, this alliance here is being led by this king of Jerusalem. Now think Jerusalem of old, not the Jerusalem that you're probably familiar with in the New Testament. It becomes this important spiritual city. This is prior to that. But this king, Adonai Zedek, is leading this alliance of all these other nations. And this king is intimidated for good reasons. I mean, verse 1 tells us he knows what Joshua and his army is capable of. They've seen what they've done to Jericho and to Ai. They know that this is no small army to be trifled with. But then in verse 2, he knows what Gibeon is capable of. Here we learn something interesting that we didn't know last week. Gibeon is not just a, a, a people that are great actors. They're also great warriors. And now those great warriors are aligned with a great people like the Israelites. That's bad news. And the union of these two forces becomes even more intimidating 
when you realize it's a very strategic alliance that Israel has now made because it essentially cuts the promised land, the land of Canaan, in half. In fact, if you were to look at the map here, and you see where Joshua crossed over at the Jordan River and encamped at Gilgal. You see those red dots of Jericho, Ai, Gibeon. Gibeon controls a lot of the, the territories to the west there. They've essentially cut a straight line across the promised land at this point. And look at all the, na- or all the, the people groups there to the south. And perhaps one of the most intimidating things for Jerusalem is look how close Gibeon is to them. They feel the pressure. They feel the heat is on and they have to act. They need to do something quickly. And as such, Adonai Zedek knows his best play is to attack Gibeon, but he must not do it alone. He rallies, uh, rallies fellow enemies uh, to unite against Gibeon, these, these places of uh, Hebron, of Jarmuth, Japhia, Lachish, uh, Eglon, right? All these different uh, armies. This is like the original battle of the five armies here, all uniting against the common enemy of Gibeon and Israel. And this puts Israel in a very unique position because they are now essentially allies with the Gibeonites, right? Because of the treaty that they just accidentally made in chapter 9, they are somewhat responsible to come to the defense of these people. As such, we're going to see something very interesting in this chapter. Because here we see God using the mistake that Israel made in chapter 9. And he's using it as a catalyst to speed up the process of conquering the promised land. Because by the end of this chapter... The entire southern half of the promised land is essentially under Israelite control, all in one chapter. Once again, we see God using Israel's mess for good as it accelerates their ability to gain control over the land. And so in verse 6, the Gibeonites rightfully call on the Israelites to help them, which leads us to verses 6 through 15, where we see the mighty display of God's power. The mighty display of God's power. And this section is filled with multiple displays of God's awesome power. Upon hearing the news of Gibeon's despair, Joshua begins to mobilize his troops in verse 7. And as he departs, he is once again assured by Yahweh in verse 8 that the victory has already been won. He says to him, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. I mean, think about the encouragement again. God's saying this is not just a hopeful expectation This is a promise. I have already won you the victory, and you haven't even gone there yet. I mean, think about the mindset change that has on Joshua and the people even just going into the battle. And we go to verse 9 then, where Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night. And even though this is a surprise, the verse sounds a little anticlimactic to us. It doesn't feel all that dramatic until you realize, as you look at the map there, that Gilgal to Gibeon is almost 30 miles. If you know anything about running, that's, that's longer than a marathon, right? And anybody who's run a marathon knows that's a long distance. And they're doing so in the dark of night. 
And they come upon them in the early hours of the morning, having marched all night with this now supernatural strength, not only to march, but now be able to fight. Although we're going to see soon that there's not a whole lot of fighting they have to do. Such a midnight journey was unheard of in these days. Armies didn't move at nighttime like this. And so it does indeed catch the enemy forces by surprise. Catches them off guard. And this is where we see that everything goes haywire for the enemy. We read there in verse 10 that the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. I love this because it's so true so often of emergency situations where all logic and reason go out the window and all of a sudden everybody's just running for their lives, right? All going their own direction, it's chaos. And that's exactly what unfolds here for the enemy forces. They begin to panic, they begin to run, and Israelite uh, forces begin pursuing them over a great distance of the promised land here, just chasing them everywhere. But this is where we see Yahweh do something really interesting, you caught on to it there in verse 11. You saw that the Lord began to throw down stones from heaven. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you were involved in the uh, hailstorm over uh, around Roanoke last year? How many of you were impacted by that? Okay. You, you probably saw the, the devastation that just even normal size or slightly nor- above average size hail can do to to homes, to to cars, to people even, right? Uh, These are no small hailstones that the Lord is throwing here. These are what we would call boulders, hundreds of pounds of rock falling from the sky. I mean, you want to talk about a terrible sight. Can you imagine running alongside your comrade and look over at him, all of a sudden you just go, it's gone. And in case you were wondering what that does to a person, uh, verse 11 makes it very clear to us what happens uh, when that happens. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel, and they died. Because in case you didn't know that, when you get crushed by a couple hundred pounds of rock, you die immediately, right? And the verse goes on to say that more people that day died by a cause of hailstones than even by the sword. I mean, this was a display of power unlike anything the world had seen up to this point. All pointing to the great, great power of God. Almost these stones being left there as, again, these memorial stones, as we've talked about throughout this uh, book about the power of God. And then we get to verse 12 where we see something else was happening that day during the battle. We see Joshua speaking directly to the Lord in the presence of all Israel And he says, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. What exactly is Joshua praying and what is happening here? Uh, The reality is there's actually a lot of different interpretations of this. If you read any commentator, they're going to give you a lot of different positions on this. Uh, We're probably most familiar with the idea of Uh, The sun stopping, or really, uh, for all of us who understand how science works, the earth stopping, right, in such a way that it prolongs the day. In fact, I'm going to venture to guess that a lot of you, your Bible translations, at the beginning of chapter 10, the title of the chapter is The Sun Stands Still. Is that correct for most of you? 
right? So obviously that's an interpretive piece there that tells us that they had a long day to help uh, with the conquest of the land. Others would actually say that it wasn't a long day, but actually a prolonged night because they marched through the night and they came under the cover of darkness and that it was a more helpful tactic for them as they sought to eliminate the enemy forces under the cover of night. Others would say that it was just figurative to describe the, the nature of the day and how the Lord fought for the people. I still think that the, the long day idea, based on everything that happens this day, is probably the best uh, interpretation there. But no matter what position you come to, the interesting thing is that's not the main thrust of this section. In fact, if you were to read on here in verse 14, the author says, there has been no day like this before or since. And you're like, well, duh. I mean, I mean, think of all the, the hailstones and everything that's happening. He says, no, 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 not because of that. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Whoa. The emphasis here is not necessarily on the mighty power of God and the geographical forces that are going on that day, but in the ability of God to cooperate with man. I like the way that David Howard puts it. He says, The author has chosen to marvel at this fact and not the supposed marvel of the sun stopping. This is either because the sun did not actually stop or because despite whatever ordinary or extraordinary event may or may not have taken place with the sun and the moon, the most important fact was the interaction between God and his people. That is the truly amazing thing that happened this day about how the Lord fought with his people. And throughout this section, God's mighty power is on display. And I love how the author uses language that draws our attention to the fact that it was Yahweh's fight. He was the one throwing people into confusion. He was the one throwing down boulders from heaven. He was the one fighting. He was the one listening. He was the one delivering his people. That is the point. That is the mighty display of God's power. And it gives way to verses 16 and 27 where we see the shocking encouragement of God's judgment. The shocking encouragement of God's judgment. You may be asking yourselves at this point in the story, where are those five kings that said they were going to lead their troops into battle? It's a good question. Where are they? They're hiding in their makeshift uh, storm shelter that they created in this cave down in Makeda, about 20 miles away from here. Not a whole lot of leadership going on on their part, is there? Upon hearing this, Joshua has them seal up the cave so that they can't escape uh, he allows the rest of his forces to go out and finish the job with all the fleeing enemy. And then they return in verse 21. And in verses 22 and 23, they bring these kings out of the cave and they present them before the people. And in verse 24, Joshua calls for the commanders to do something that to us feels a little icky, if I'm allowed to use that sophisticated word. It feels a bit intense. He, he calls for them to put their feet on the necks of these five kings. Yeah, it sounds a bit barbaric, doesn't it? it? Makes us a little uncomfortable. But again, before you get too sympathetic, remember these were the pagan leaders of a wicked people. 
a leadership that led their people into all kinds of incest, sexual perversion, sacrificing of children. These are no innocent parties here. This is God's judgment upon a very wicked people, not because Israel was better, but because God was mad at this wicked practice. And so this idea of putting the feet on the necks was no doubt an ancient practice for conquering armies, but it was also a primary, uh, primarily symbolic to show victory and dominion over a foe. But here's the shocking part of it all. In verse 25, Joshua says this gesture is meant to be an encouragement. Look what he says in verse 25. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Do Joshua's words sound familiar to you? Because they're the same words that we repeat at the end of every service, the same words that God spoke to him in chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He will give you this victory. Translation, the Lord is fighting for you. And he will do what he promised. This judgment of these five kings is meant to be an encouragement to the people that God is going to continue to carry out the promise that he made at the beginning. I wonder if you find God's judgment encouraging this morning. Obviously, it might depend on where you are in your relationship with the Lord. But for God's people, every act of justice should be an encouraging reminder to us that our God is just and he will do what he has promised to do to make things right in this wicked world when he returns. And so we see the, the fate of these kings sealed here at the end of the, uh, at verses 26 and 27. The same fate as the king of Ai. They are put upon a tree, they are cast into the cave at the end of the day, and they are sealed up with more stones that are piled on as memorial stones of judgment to remind us of God's just power. And that leads us finally to verses 28 to 43, where we see the total destruction of God's enemies. And if you were to read through this, you would see a lot of similarities in these verses to one another. You could almost push the fast forward button because it reads very similarly. And I think that that's the point of the author. As he wants us to see from one place, from one city to the next, the same thing happened over and over again. To Makeda, captured. Libna, captured. Lachish, captured. Eglon, captured. Hebron, captured. Debir, captured. Similar language in every single one of them. The Lord allows the people to go in and take the land from them and to have total control. So much so that the summary in verses 40 to 41 says that Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. How was the total conquest of this southern half of Canaan possible? Look at verse 42. Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. By the time Joshua and the troops returned to Gilgal in verse 43, over half the promised land is in their possession. 
Pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? And I know as we look at a passage like this, we, we think to ourselves, well, what does this mean for me? And guess what? We, we need to talk about that, but we're already out of time for today. I know some of you are going to get anxiety here because I have fill in the blanks. I'm not going to fill in the blank for you today. Tell you what, you can just go ahead and try to fill them in and you'll see if you're right next week when we return. But we'll do this next week. We'll pick up and we'll, we'll talk about what this actually means for us uh, as believers this side of the cross. But suffice it to say, when we look back on chapter 10, I believe as we look over the course of this entire chapter, we see here that nothing is impossible for our warrior God. There is no threat to great There is no miracle too amazing, no authority too powerful, no opposition too protected that our God cannot overcome. Jesus reminds us in the New Testament that where things are impossible with man, all things are possible with God. And I would say to you, that's especially true when your God is a warrior who fights for you. Be encouraged here this morning, church. As those of you who are still living in this world, who are still dealing with the, the, uh, the sin-cursed world, the wickedness around you, be assured that you have a warrior God who still fights for you and he will bring about what he has promised in the end and bring about the day of all perfection for his people. And we'll talk more about that again next week. So let's pray for now. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the encouragement that your word brings. To be reminded that you are not you are not a weak God, nor are you a distant God, but you are a God who is intimately involved in the lives of your people, those who follow you by faith. And so I thank you for the reminder today of your power and might, and yet, Lord, we recognize that it is a dreadful thing to be an enemy of you. So we would hope and pray that if there are any here today who are resisting you, that you would soften their hearts to bring them to a a knowledge of yourself, that they might understand what it is not to be one of your enemies, but what it is to be an ally, a friend, and even more importantly, a child who's been adopted into your family. So thank you, Lord, for your care for your people. We pray that you would encourage our hearts with this message today in Jesus' name. Amen.